Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. What a pleasure. So excited today to introduce my guest, Tony Rock. Such a great day. This is going to be an amazing podcast, and I'm really, really excited about it. Before I get started, I just want to thank you guys again so much. I know I'm a broken record, but you have no idea how grateful I am to all of you. Thank you so much for all the support. It means so much to me, truly, so, so much. And before I get started, I always look at my guest and I always say what comes to mind. And when I think of Tony Rock, think of the kind of difficult, unique adversity that sometimes we create for ourselves and sometimes get created without our control family elements, things that happen from the outside, but also instincts that can put us in jeopardy and put us in a situation where we don't always have the best situation for our careers when we had the window to actually have the upper hand and how fate with hard work, perseverance, and the ability to work really really diligently at our crafts and study the people in our areas of business that are great. And it's amazing what can happen. Tony Rock is a guy who grew up in the shadows of arguably one of the greatest comedians in the history of our business, his brother Chris, and a guy who really, really had an example set for him by watching his brother. But on the flip side, knowing that that was a difficult shadow being cast and how was he going to be in a situation to make his own mark to create great projects for himself 
to work in extraordinary sitcoms, host great shows, and become the kind of force on the road where he could sell out venues similarly to how his brother had. Also, a guy who'd been offered hundreds of thousands of dollars for television development deals when he had nothing, when he was eating crap macaroni and cheese, and turned them down because he believed in something bigger and better. And it all worked out to his advantage. It's incredible how it all happens. But when you believe in yourself and you're a guy like him who used to walk to the Laugh Factory three miles just to watch shows and make his presence felt to the club owner so one day he could get an opportunity, thousands of hours spent just watching, waiting for the opportunity, even though he passed on a huge opportunity, which you'll hear about in this podcast, and came back stronger than ever. What lessons. It's incredible. I just love talking to this guy. I love being around this guy. I love the feeling I get when I look back and I see his career and I see what's happening. This guy's done more shows than most artists dream about doing in a lifetime. I tell you something, if you can figure out a way to deal with issues like he's dealt with, to go past situations where you're in the shadow of a co-worker, a family member, to really work harder than everybody else, to show up more and more, even when you're not supposed to be there, just to make it so people see that you're there and people know that you're a part of the action. And then to keep fighting and forging forward and create great relationships to get you to the next level. I tell you something, if you can do all of those things, I can guarantee you, you'll definitely have the possibility of having the kind of career that Tony Rock has. Okay, here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited to introduce my guest today, Tony Rock. And without further ado, let's get down to it. Tony Rock is a comedian, writer, actor, and producer. Known for hosting HBO's weekly stand-up series, All Deaf Comedy, as well as many, many other things like BET's Black Card Revoked, TV One's new outrageous game show, The Game of Dating, the all-deaf movie awards on Fusion, the warm-up on NBA TV, and Man and Wife on Bounce. Tony has been busy getting ready for another eventful year. Starring in such films as Couples Night and back-to-back tour dates, Tony Rock continues to exceed all expectations, causing laughter everywhere he goes. Born in the same Brooklyn, New York hospital where most of his eight brothers and sisters found their way, Tony Rock, not to be confused with his favorite wrestler, was born laughing. Being the brother of an established entertainer, Tony was able to successfully elude the shadows of his older sibling and step into his own limelight. He's proven himself as one of the most talented, well-respected, hard-working, sought-after entertainers in the business. 
Just a few years prior, Tony hosted the newly revamped legendary talent competition Apollo Live for two seasons on BET, and also had a cameo in the number one box office film Think Like a Man. TV appearances on BET's Let's Stay Together and vh one Single Ladies, all while still managing the star in a film entitled Come On Man, in addition to co-hosting the BET Awards red carpet for the second year in a row. Steadily on the road every weekend, Tony has gained more and more fans, selling out arenas and comedy clubs all over the country in a domestic and international presence known to very few comics in the world. When in New York, he's a regular at the Gotham Comedy Club, Comic Strip, and Comedy Cellar. And when in Los Angeles, he is a regular at the Comedy Store, Comedy Union, The Improv, and headlining at the Laugh Factory. After more than a decade of experience, Tony has proven himself as a skillful comedian, actor, and executive producer. Outside of the lights, camera, action world, Tony works tirelessly as the founder of the My Rock Diabetes Foundation, a charity organization established in honor of his late father. His newest venture, the CBS sitcom Living Biblically, is making waves now on television. And you gotta see it. It's a funny, funny show. Please welcome my guest today, a guy who eluded me in Montreal for people who didn't have my anatomy, but now he's here, thank God, and I'm very excited about it. Please welcome my guest today, Tony Rock. Hey, hey, how are you, sir? I feel wonderful now that I'm across from you. It is a pleasure. And it was only one time before. It was Montreal. The comedy festival was going on, and uh, I'm I I was so happy to see that I'm way more famous in Montreal than the first time I was there for the comedy festival. That's an interesting thing you just said. I want to ask you this: When you first started, are you thinking, "I want to be the best comedian I can possibly be," or are you thinking, "I want to be famous"? No, I I don't care for fame at all. I want it to be, I still want to be the best comedian in the world. I want to be the number one guy. I don't think, I think if you're going into it and you're not thinking number one, why are you going into it? I'm sure some guys are going in, you know, this is what I do. I feed my family and I make a nice living and I, you know, go home to my wife and kids. I want to be number one. I used to work at this comedy club <laughs> called Play It Again Sam's in Boston. And Tom Maloney, the owner, was this dictatorish kind of guy. And you'd go into the club and there'd be photos of war. And, and you'd think, whoa, this is going to be a great comedy show. <laughs> Nothing says laughter like dead people in pictures. And he used to put flyers on cars that said free admission when another person pays when you go to play it again, Sam's Comedy Club. And I went up to him and I said, listen, Tom, I don't want to upset you or anything like this, but the Comedy Connection, they're number one in town and they don't do free passes. I think it cheapens our room. And he looked at me and he said, Barry, it's okay to be Volkswagen. It's okay to be Toyota. It's okay to be Nissan. They make a lot of fucking money, Barry. Yeah, see, some people, are in, uh, some people look at comedy the same way. They just do it because... You know, it's a nice check. Even on the lower rung, it's a nice check. You but know? you never wanted to be Toyota or no, Nissan. No, 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 no. You wanted wanna to be, be Bentley. I wanted to be Rolls Royce. Rolls Royce. Six months to make one. 
So you go to Montreal and you realize that it takes an hour and a half to walk through the room. Yeah, the first time I did Montreal, I did new faces. So nobody knew me. I had never been to Montreal. I didn't even know where I was going. I was literally just walking around like, this is crazy. Montreal kind of looks like New York City. Like the girls were super friendly. It was, it was beautiful women that spoke French. It was like, this is out of body experience for a kid from Bedside, you know? And I did new faces and had one of the breakout sets. And that night, I remember that night when I got off stage, I'm in other venues and people are like, hey, this kid, Tony Rock, I heard he killed. And I'm sitting right, standing right there. And they're like, they don't even know who I am, but they're talking about me. And it was like, okay, this might be something. We might have something here. I got offered a deal that night. Here's a story that you don't know. I got offered a $150,000 holding deal from the UPN at the time. Remember, UPN was up and running before CW. Of course. $150,000. And uh, Richie Tinkin, my manager. For the audience, Richie Tinkin was the owner of the comic strip along with? Uh, Bob Wax. Bob, Bob Wax, yeah. And Ooh. he was Eddie Murphy's manager for Eddie's first 11 years in the business. He was my manager at the time. And he's like, what do you think, Pally? And I was like, I'm so new. I'm like, okay, so a holding deal is like, I, I'm off the, sh I'm on the shelf until they find something for me. And, you know, explain this to me. And he's like, yeah, you got $150,000. You just sit and wait for UPN to find something potentially to put you in. They might not find anything for you. You keep the, you keep the 150, but you can't meet with ABC. You can't meet with CBS. You can't meet with Fox. You can't meet with ABC, NBC, Fox. And I said, no, nah, I didn't come all the way here to not play the game. I, I, I'm not going to sit on the bench. I'm going to play the game. So tell them, you know, thank you, but no thank you. No money. I was broke as shit. No money. $150,000. I said, nah, cool. I'm cool. They came back. $200,000. Richie goes, Pally, I think we really need to talk, talk about this money. Take, think about this money. The power of no. Me and Sherrod, you know, my cousin Sherrod Small, we were there and, and we're both sitting like, what do we think? $200,000. I'm like, yeah, but I don't get to you know, really play the game. I don't get to talk to ABC. What if ABC has a show that they could put me in or can put a, build a show around me? And we just took ourselves out of the game. And I'm like, I came to play the game, man. I came to get up to bat. So we'll turn down two, the 200. Then they said uh, uh, 250 and the deal's off the table at midnight. And I might have said the cockiest thing I ever said in my life, if you can believe that, because I've said a lot of cocky shit in my life. I said, I've seen the shows on the UPN. That deal will still be there tomorrow. And we went and partied our asses off. Like me and Sherrod went and partied all night. And the next morning, Richie called and said, Pally, Dale's still on the table. And we, there was a victory just in that. Like, I knew it. I knew it was going to. And we turned it down. And we went, flew to L.A. I'd never been to L.A. Came to L.A., took the meetings with Fox and NBC and CBS and ABC. And nothing happened. Got nothing. I just went on some auditions. And we left $250,000 on the table. What are you, high on the African the Ninja weed? <laughs> You're how old then? Uh, 25. I have so much respect for what you did. And I believe in what you did because I'm always talking about the power of no. Right. And the power of no gets you what you want. But the power of no then got you part of what you wanted right. and increased your number from 150 to 250 right. for an unknown guy that's resume was a piece of copy paper and the deal for the upn the way they work is that you have three options they bring you the first thing you don't like it you pass they bring you the second thing you don't like it 
you can pass. They bring you the third thing, and if you don't like that, you pass. You have to give some money back or all of the money or half of the money. But normally, it never gets to that point. Right. So a lot of times in these development deals, as many people will tell you, nothing happens. And you only have to sit on a shelf for normally six months until the end of that pilot season. And I know what you're saying. Well, the deal goes to December 31st. Right. I'd have to sit for that long. No, you take meetings with the other networks, you do whatever. And if you get offered another deal, then you do a buyout from the remaining amount of time you have left and you put money you're in your pocket. You're talking to a 25-year-old kid that didn't know I know, but you had a great manager and, work with Eddie Murphy. But look, it worked out because... I passed. I went back to New York. I was I had a little fame now from being the breakout act in Montreal Comedy Festivals. I started working more on the road. Locally, I was doing, you know, Philly and Jersey and uh, the tri-state area. I was working. Uh, I went out to L.A. for pilot season. The next year, nothing happened. Came back home, worked, went back to L.A. the next year for pilot season and booked all of us that was on what? The UPN. So it all worked out. It's all good. It's all going to work out the way it's supposed to work out. But when you're just going up there and you have nothing, the chances of something happening. But you know, you can't miss what you never had, you know. Didn't have any money. So it was like no money. It was, okay, I'm comfortable here. Look who my brother is. And I don't use it at all. I never went into an audition or a meeting saying, hey, I'm Chris's brother. I always bet on me. Tell me the different people you talked to who looked at you and said, what are you fucking crazy? Oh, everybody, everybody. Every time me and Sherrod were hungry from that day on, it was like, <laughs> fuck, man, 250,000. We eating crackers right now in a studio apartment in Brooklyn. And we left $250,000 in Montreal. But it was like, hey, man, this is this is the mission. This is what it is. And maybe because of my knowledge and my experience, because I've probably done over 100 different development deals. I'm going to do a little quiz for you, and you'll be able to answer this perfectly well. Name all the stand-up comedians you know that have been the lead of their own show, shot 100 episodes and went to syndication, that weren't doing comedy more than 10 years. Name one. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld? No, he was doing comedy for a long time, like 17 years. Okay. Uh, Martin? Nope. He was doing stand-up for a long, long time. They don't exist. Yeah, you don't, you don't, right. It, it, right I agree. They don't it, exist. It takes 20 years to, to be an overnight sensation, right? So you're there, you get offered the 250, and I just want to understand the process. In Montreal, all the networks are there. Right. The process as a manager, for me, if I get an offer, and I've been up there many times, and right. I've got many offers, and normally, out of all the development deals I've done, maybe 5 or 10% get somebody on the air. Okay. In a miracle. It's very rare. It just doesn't happen. Even You know how the process is. It's awful. Right. But if I'm Richie Tinkin... What I do when I get the offer is I immediately call the president of ABC, NBC, CBS, the WB, and Fox, and I say, my client just got an offer for $150,000 from UPN. I strongly suggest you have somebody see him this next set he's doing, and I will strongly consider whatever you have to offer. So then I know who's interested and who isn't interested. They're all up there. Right. And if they don't respond, then I take my best offer that I have, unless the artist is like, I don't care what amount of money it is, I'm not working for that network or right. I'm not working with that thing. 
And so that's why you have the opportunity to figure it out right there and there. That's what Montreal is all about. They're all there. Right. So that's why I'm confused why that wasn't done at the time. And so you could have made a legitimate decision right then and there. Maybe after all of the years with Eddie, he probably decided, you know, the, the, the way things ended with Eddie was, wasn't, you know, they didn't hug when they parted ways. It wasn't like an amicable split, you know. So maybe huh? this time around it was I'll let the talent... How many times have you fired one of your managers and hugged them? Uh, no, me and Richie are still very close. I don't, he's not my manager anymore, yeah. but we're still very close. Yeah. Richie was, was hugely responsible for all of my success. Yeah, he's an amazing yeah. man. I, I give props to Richie. Every interview, every time I sit down and talk, Richie Tinkin took a chance on a skinny kid with a chipped tooth, and he, everything started happening after that. And then Richie's partner, Richie had a partner. He was kind of, when I got the sitcom, he kind of was, was of the opinion, like, let's just sit back and wait and see what happens. And I was of the opinion... Okay, I have a show now. We now we hot. Let's do these things. Let's pitch some shows. Let's try to, you know, be a, a player in the game. And it was just, hey, let's just let's let's just wait. I'm like, and I think he was kind of just happy with getting the commission check every week. So there was no need to really work. I have an enormous amount of respect for Richie Tink. And hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So one of the things about your career that I love is that you're like an anomaly. You've had these moments in your career and these blocks of time where you have shared with me indirectly in passing that there's a lack of understanding of why things happen the way they do, why things don't happen, why there's a dormant time, why then is there times when things are busy? Like right now, you're like the busiest you've ever been in your life. Yes. You're doing sitcoms, you're hosting deaf comedy, you did the Apollo, mm -hmm. everything is happening for you. But there's been times where things don't happen the way you want them to happen and you're right. still the same artist. Right. You still have the same talent. You're still doing the same things the same way. Why do you think that happens that way? And what do you think it is that lets you be so strong and confident and keep moving forward when there's one, two, three years sometimes where there's nothing that's happening. You're like, shit, this guy's getting that. I never look at what the next guy's doing. 
I never care what the next guy booked whatever and he's on whatever tour. I don't give a damn. That's probably my gift and my curse is I don't give a fuck what anybody else is doing. I never, comics, I hear comics all the time beat themselves down over this guy got this and I went on in that part. I went out for that audition and this guy, and this guy has a Netflix special and he sucks. It's, what do you care? Like, why do you care that somebody great got something or somebody that you don't think is funny got something? It doesn't have anything to do with you. Just keep working. Just stay on the track. Stay on the, on the, on the, on the, in the race. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Just keep running. You, you're going to make progress. You don't, if you look back sometimes, you'd be amazed at how far you made it if you just take a look back at where you are now as opposed to where you started. We look back all the time. We, me and Sherrod. I say Sherrod, I say we a lot, and I'm going to say we a lot because I'm talking about me and Sherrod. This is our mindset. Just look back every once in a while how far you came. You'd be amazed. And just keep running. So that's why I never get sidetracked by what else anybody else is doing. Uh, doing stand-up has become pretty much my entire life. It's like I wake up in the morning, I try to write jokes, I, I have a notepad at the side of the bed, I try to write, I think of something, I jot it down, I hear people in conversation say something and I catch it and, oh, that's an interesting point of view that guy has. Maybe there's material, write it down. I watch the news in the morning and try to see what's going on in the world. It has encompassed my whole life. So to not be on stage for maybe two or three days, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. So now anybody in my circle, my boys, like, you wanna go out tonight? Yeah, first let's stop at the factory, then we'll do this but I'm gonna put some comedy is gonna be in there somewhere. My girl, like, you wanna go see a movie? Sure, but let's stop by the factory first, or we'll go to the movies early so I can stop by the factory later or stop by the store. It's my life. It, it has, I, I couldn't do anything without it now. It's become such a part of my life that it has just taken over everything. You know, Everybody knows that, that knows me. It's just like, you looking for Tone? Just go to a comedy club. He's gonna walk in there at some point. One of the things that always impressed me about you and I used to come up to you at the Laugh Factory when you first started coming to town, and you weren't on the lineup. Yeah. And you were there every night. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's yeah. like, look, Barry, people cancel. Yeah. I want my stage time. I can't get up here in town that often. I would go, listen, let me tell you something. I used to, I used to when I first came out, I was sleeping on people's couches. I was bouncing around couch to couch to couch. Uh, my manager at the time, he had a friend named Andre. Who was the manager? Uh, uh, Mark Mc McClafferty. That was his name, Mark McClafferty. He was partners with Richie. He and Richie partnered because Richie didn't want to fly east-west every time there was a meeting. Or Richie had children now. that He, he had uh, daughters that he missed out on their childhood working with Eddie. He had young sons he didn't want to miss out on their childhood working with me. So he partnered with Mark McClafferty to handle the California partner. And who else did Mark represent at the time? Cat Williams. Mark had myself and Cat Williams just before both of us like kind of hit. And uh, I used to stay on Pico. If you know LA, I used to stay on Pico and a uh, few blocks, was it west or east? A few blocks off of Pico and Fairfax. I would walk from Pico to the Laugh Factory every day. Walk from Pico to the left. To Which, the, so you know, everybody, that's probably about three miles. I would walk that Monday through Sunday, sit in the factory, watch all the shows, and walk all the way back. And uh, whether I'm on the lineup or not, it was, that was just what I did. And one Saturday night, I'm in there. Uh, I walk. I'm, I'm, I start to walk at like you know seven o'clock. I get to the factory for the eight o'clock show. I sit through the eight o'clock show. I sit through the ten o'clock show. I sit through the twelve o'clock show. I walk back. And one night, Elon Gold was there. 
and uh, he was on an 8 o'clock show. Elon Gold, great friend of mine. I love Elon. <clears throat> he says, uh, are you on? And I'm like, no, nah, I'm just hanging. And he's, you on the next show? No, no, I'm not on tonight. And he's, what are you doing? I'm, like, I'm just hanging out, watching the shows. So you're going to sit through all of the shows tonight? Yeah, I do this every night. If I'm not on the show, I'll sit through. Somebody might be late. I'll jump on. Somebody cancels. I'll, I'll get on. And I saw Elon maybe three, four nights later. And he's like, you know what? I haven't stopped thinking about you since that night. I don't know anybody with that much focus and dedication to what they're doing. And to this day, I hear comics all the time, like, how do I get on at the factory? And I said, you got to play the waiting game. You got to come in and show your face. Let Jamie see you for a while. And he'll, hey, buddy, you, you comic? He'll, okay, go on, do five minutes. But they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. So I, once I see that you don't want to do it and your focus is not like that, I don't want to give you advice. I don't want to tell you what to do because you just want to do it for some crazy reason like the chicks or you want to be famous, like you said earlier. You don't really love stand-up. It's like in New York when summertime comes. Everybody signs up for open mics in, in New York in the summertime. Once that fucking hawk come in, in November, nobody's coming to do spots anymore. It weeds everybody out. And that's the same thing. If you don't want to sit in the club all night and wait for a spot that could potentially not happen, you don't want to do it. I would come in sometimes at 5 o'clock just to have a free lunch with Jamie because I was so fucking broke. I'd say 95% of the time yes. you wouldn't get on stage, yes. but you just put your time and you studied. Man, listen, it was the best class ever. I watched Freddie Soto. Rest in peace, Freddie Soto. Freddie Soto was the first comic that I called home about and was like to my boys, like, is this dude out here, man? His name is Freddie Soto. This dude is the truth. And they were like, okay, well, you know, we'll check him out when, he, when he's on the road or when he's in New York. Well, I called home about Dane. Dane would, the Laugh Factory would be standing room only when he was in there. And I'm like, this dude's, I didn't, I didn't even know who he was when I first got out here. And I'm like, this dude's fucking incredible. Freddie Soto, Dane Cook, uh, uh, Arsenio would stop by sometimes. I saw Rodney, I went on stage one night after Rodney Dangerfield because the next comic didn't want to follow him. And I was like, thank you, Lord. Rodney Dangerfield went on stage, notepad crumbled up, pieces of paper that looked like he blew his nose on him, and he's like opening them up and his jokes on these papers. Oh, yeah, oh, this is a good one. And he just does a joke, and he has shorts on and a long shirt and bed head, and he kills, and they're like, nobody wants to follow him. I'll go. I'll go. And I went on, and I, I remember I said, uh, I said, I want to be like, I, I said, uh, give it up for Rodney Dangerfield. I said, I want to be like you one day, sir. I want to be like you. I want to be so famous that I walk in here looking like I just rolled out of fucking bed <laughs> and people still care about what I'm saying. I came up stage and go, hey, kid, not, not bad, kid, not bad. <laughs> and Jamie's like, this is like Chris's brother. Oh, okay, all right, kid, keep it up. And just walked out. But it was like nobody wanted to follow him. I the reason know. why people don't want to follow household names on shows is because the crowd walks oh yeah they, they leave of course and but, so what happens is the guy gets off stage the host goes on and then there's like 50 yeah. percent or more yeah. of the crowd more than that that just leaves this what but what, what people don't realize is when you're on stage especially in a comedy club sorry audience it's not even about that audience the guys that are there in the room it's not it's never about you this is just to get this ready for the next one to get this ready for the theater show to get this ready for you know knowing how to do it flawlessly so the audience that's there, it's never about them. It's like, you guys are fucking guinea pigs. This is just my workout to get this where I want it to be. And I need you people to sit in the room so I can have, you know, hear, hear the laughter. But it's not about that room. So when people get up after Rodney, or I've, I've gone up after Dave Chappelle, I've gone up after my brother, people leaving, it's like, it's not even, it wasn't about y'all to begin with. It was, I just need to do this to get it 
to where I want it to be. You know how every comic, even Robin Williams, had somebody who he didn't want to follow. I believe it was Lenny Schultz. There's always somebody in the back of every artist's mind that's like, every time I go on after that guy, it just never goes the way I want it to go. And I know I'm better. I know I'm as good, but I don't want to follow that guy. Is there anybody like that for you? When I first started working at the factory, like following Dane and following Freddie was not an enviable task. In stand-up, you are absolutely one of the hardest working people I've ever met. When you get a television show, I don't think the mentality is the same on the graph. If you're 100% in stand-up and killing yourself and putting the time in, I always felt when you got a television show, you didn't put that much time and dedication and energy and hours into the minutiae from beginning of the day till the end. It's funny that you say that because my sister has told me my entire life, you know what your problem is? Shit comes too easy to you. My sister said, you're the kid that could walk in the park having not practiced and score 30 points. I'm Allen Iverson. I can just literally like fuck practice, party all night, go on the, cl- go on the court and score 30. And she's like, that's your problem. Shit comes too easy to you. I think with the acting, you you might be right, but you might be a little wrong because with I'm, in, in terms of all of us, I'm going to speak on just specifically that sitcom that I was on. I played myself. I pretty much played Tony Rock with a different name. So it was, I can just walk on and do this. Like they wrote, they wrote everything around who I really was and uh, they took a little bit of my life. And if I was having a conversation on set, writers would go, hey, we're going to take that. We're going to use that. Or writers would come to the factory and see me and go, hey, dude, we we taking that. So it was so much of me that I was probably not 100% locked in. But I wasn't locked. I wasn't wasn't 20%. If I wasn't 100, I was maybe 80% because I'm always focused and I'm scared to lose a job. When I got on All of Us, I was the only person in the entire cast that the world had never seen before. The the cast was Dwayne Martin. You've seen him in several things. Lisa Ray, she was in several things. Elise Neal. Even Kamani Griffin was in Daddy Daycare and done, had done several commercials. Terry J. Vaughn, she was in a bunch of stuff. Tony Rock was, who is this guy? So I always felt like I had to be up, like play on par with these guys. I had to play to the level of my competition. And that, I was locked in for all of us. But then it became, okay, they just write whatever I do and say and however I act. So I guess I can not read the script a hundred times before I get to set. I, I can get the script the night before and read it and go to bed and be fine. So you're right, but you're wrong, but you're right, but you're wrong, but you're right. If you had to guess how many full nights you put in at the Laugh Factory watching three shows or one show or two shows, how many nights? Oh, man, uh, years. I don't even, years. Would you say over 100 nights? Of course. Would you say over 500 nights? Yeah. Okay. So 500 nights, an average of, let's just say, four hours, okay? Okay. That's 2,000 hours, okay? 2,000 hours studying the craft of stand-up comedy without going on stage. Right. I want you to tell me in the audience how many hours you've spent studying the craft of acting, going to plays and watching people work as actors, going to shows looking what acting is, going to the theater in the park. How many hours? I, I see your point. Okay, so 2,000 for stand-up, probably 
500 for acting. Yeah. So 25% of yeah. your focus when you're stand-up, the thing about it is, if I could share with the audience, yeah, yeah, like absolutely. you write, create, star in, executive produce, direct your own life and right. your own profession right. every time you go on. When you go and you get a role, like you're in this great show, Living so Biblically, yeah. I love it. That's another one when I saw the cast, like, wait, Cameron Manheim. <laughs> Ian Gomez, Jay Ferguson, Sarah Gilbert. I got to get on my shit. I got to get on my shit. Your role is to walk in, drop the fucking hammer down, and walk out. <laughs> yes. You're never going to be on camera servicing a part or servicing somebody. You're there to get the laughs. Yes, yes, I agree. But when you go on to a show like that, you're not writing it. You're not executive producing it. You're not directing it. And some executive producers don't want you to try anything. You could never work under those circumstances. Yeah, I would have I, difficulty working like that. However, there are times when Tony might have the instinct. Look, I don't think I can ask this guy again if I can change a line. So this third take, I'm just going to do my line the way it is. And if he gets mad at me, he gets mad at me. But I'm going to get a huge laugh in here. I bet you've done that yes. a few times. Oh, several times. I've, you, I've talked other actors into it. Like, you got a lot? Listen, just say it. Just Yeah, because you have to navigate sometimes with the people you work with because they're getting paid a lot of money to write. No matter how much of a writer or creator Tony is, in their mind, you're an actor. You're a hired hand. Yeah. Okay? Say the shit the way I wrote it. And if your stuff gets on the show... And they watch the episode. It's a reminder, like, I didn't write that line. He wrote that right, line. Right, And that's the weird part about it. You said you, we a lot of times, and you talk about we, and you talk about Sherrod Small. We started, it was me, Sherrod, Rachel Feinstein. Of course, who's and doing well. Who's just got engaged, by the way. Congratulations, wow. Rachel. Congratulations, uh, Rachel. And, and a friend of ours named Jason James. Uh, Stephen Donovan, also from Boston, uh, from Malden, Mass. Uh, and we were locked in, and Jason wasn't. And it was open mic nights, and sometimes we had to bark for an audience. And we would, whatever we had to do to get on stage was like nothing's, we, we'll walk, we'll do whatever. And after a few shows, Jason was just like, it's too much to do every time just to get on stage, to bark for an audience, to walk here, to, you know, stand outside passing flyers. And we were just like, whatever we got to do to get on stage, man. If the end result is we get five minutes, we won. So when you're with Sherrod, who's the closest person in the world to you, do anything for the guy, do anything for you, do you ever feel like, God damn it, okay, another year, and what am I doing wrong, and why is it happening for him and not happening as much for me? Do you ever feel that feeling in him, even as a vibe, and if you do, how do you diffuse it and help him? I don't feel that. I don't, I don't feel that. Sherrod's doing some great stuff in New York. Sherrod... Uh... He is the comics comic. He's the guy that's like kind of anti uh, suits and wants to do it the way he wants to do it. Uh, he doesn't. I don't think he desires to come to L.A. and play the game. And he's more in the in the in the uh, in the body of like a, a Patrice O'Neill. That's just like I do it my way. Maybe I could be bigger. Maybe I could be this or that if I wanted to. But I do it the way I want to do it. And I think that's the the happiness that he has. I always felt that he had the ability to do the kinds of things that you're doing. Oh, absolutely. Now. I absolutely agree with you. But I always felt like he complicated winning. 
because he wasn't willing to take all the steps necessary to have those lanes fulfilled. And I always felt Sherrod was a much lighter presence than you, and you were a little darker, and now the roles are reversed, and he's a little darker, and you're the light. Do you notice that? I do not. Really? No, you know what it is? We've known each other since we were three years old. We grew up together on the same street. It's like nothing really changes our dynamic. Do you really believe that Sherrod Small was a Patrice O'Neill type? Oh, 10 years ago? T- uh, 10 years ago? I, well, first of all, to compare anybody to Caprices. To, I'm to talking Caprices. about the aura and the energy. I'm yeah, not talking yeah, about the material. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow, I always thought Sherrod was so huggable and lovable. And Patrices, if you know him, if you know him. Patrice just hates the fakeness of the industry. He hated, he hated the fakeness of the industry. He hated the, you know, we'll do lunch, and he hated the, uh, hey, what are you working on? Like, Man, just talk. Just talk to me like a regular person. When when I, he turned it off, I I turned it off. When I get off stage, I turn it off. I don't want to be slapstick funny when I'm not on stage. I don't want to be. The, I want to be a regular person when I'm off stage. I want to be talked to like a regular person when I'm off stage. I want to have a normal conversation. Patrice hated the whole. Hey man, what are you working on? Haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? Oh, did you, did you go out for the? Uh... It's like, dude, don't let's not do this, man. We know. What we, we I know what I do. I know what you do. Let's just have a regular conversation. I, that Sherrod is like that. Sherrod is, okay, I'm on stage. It's what, it's what we do. It's what we love. But I come off stage, let me be a regular person. Have you ever been in the position where you were working on something and you were casting something and you had a vote? Like, for instance, you did the Tony Rock show on the- Oh, the Tony Rock project was horrible. And Whitney Cummings was a writer on the show or something? She was, uh, she was like my sidekick performer. But you had a vote. Right. Do you ever find sometimes that there's, when you walk through the clubs and people know you have a vote on something that it puts more pressure on you? Like, how come you didn't give me an audition for that? Okay, Tony Rock Project was, Tony Rock Project was my attempt to do my version of Chappelle's show. I wanted to do like a sketch comedy show. How did you feel when Whitney Cummings was cast on the show, knowing that she hadn't done anything They yet? cast her and didn't even tell me. I like, know. I, they put, I, I tried to get out of that contract three times. They changed the name of the show to the Tony Rock Project to make me happy. It was originally called something else. It was like two th- or three different names. And I was like, this is not going to work, man, because they keep, you can't do that. They kept pulling me back. You can't do this. You can't say that. You can't imply this. They, I tried to push the edge, push the envelope, you know, take it to the edge. And they just wouldn't let me do it. So what you saw, the finished product was what I, the pieces that I was left with. I tried to make a show with the pieces that they gave me. They cast Whitney. They cast uh, Jeff uh, uh, Heffron. Heffron, my man. John to, to Heffron. This day, to this day, still my boy. Whitney, love her to this day. They cast both of those guys, didn't even ask me a question. Would I have brought Sherrod in? Absolutely. Would I have tried to get my guys from, you know, New York? Absolutely. But it was like they put my name on it to make me happy. It was, it, it sucked. It didn't last long. It was a learning lesson. It was the first time that I did something for the check in this industry, and it was a lesson learned. Like, never do it again for the check. Never. Since that day, I've never, I will pass on anything if I don't and truly you know, feel like I should do it or feel, get behind it and really want to be involved in it. Never mind. I'm cool. I'll just go on the road. And one of the things I never also understood about the way you approach things that I want you to share with me, because I don't know the answer. Right. So you've had situations, like you said, where you have money, you don't have money. But I always looked at you as a guy who could create anything, could write anything, could work on anything, do anything like that make his own projects, even if they're short films, video series, just something that show the world like, hey, 
I write, I create, I direct, I executive produce, just like I do on stage, but I'm bringing you guys in to see my world with my friends, and I got Sherrod playing this role, and I got this guy playing that role. And you never really did that, and I didn't understand why. No, it takes a while. Listen, I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody that got a project from idea to paper to pitch to greenlit to kept the the integrity of it and kept the originality of it. That shit takes that shit is hard, man. To get something here's an idea I have. Can I get the, how far can I get this through before they start chopping it up and turning it into something else that I didn't want to do to begin with? And if that's the case, then never mind. I don't want to do it. I'll just go on the road and make money, make happy money. I get to do, ex- like you said, I get to pitch and produce and executive and edit. And I get to do all of that on stage. If you're not going to let me do it this way, let's go. We're in Cleveland this weekend. But what about if you just used your own financial resources? That's, no, that's, the, ne- that's the next plan. The next step is to do my hour special myself. That's the, that's the very next thing that you probably see from me is my hour special produced by me. My company, my uh, my name's gonna be on that. When that credit scroll, you're gonna see my name twenty times on that fucking thing. Again, you say you never look at anybody, you never think about anything, but that's another thing that always interests me about this world. There's people who come up to you; they look like they're homeless. Hey, I got another hour special. <laughs> <laughs> this business is this. Some guys are lucky. Some guys are just straight up, dude. You should go play the lotto. Do you want to be the lucky guy or you want to be the good guy? <laughs> but remember what your sister said. Yeah, no, listen, I want to be the good guy. I want to be the guy that's good. I want to be the guy that got it because I'm good. And good might take a little longer. I think to myself about the hour special, the elusive hour special. And any comic would give their right arm or leg to have the things that you're doing and the things that you've done. Some would, yeah. But the hour special is seems so elusive because this is something that the audience doesn't know that Tony deals with the psychological thing. It's one thing to get your ass handed to you every day and you get no's. Everybody's saying right. no to you. you. They're saying no to you in acting. They're saying no to you in stand-up. I'm sorry, you're not selling tickets. We can't have right. you work at the Improv in Cleveland. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're not going to have you back. But it's another thing to get almost everything in every lane except the hour special. Yes. And so people are saying no to Tony and his representation and his team. And look, I've sold 37 out of 38 hour specials. It's my greatest ratio of anything I've ever done. And I will sell that special. But if I believe in somebody's thing, I can sell it. But... The fact is, is that the company or the network that you want might still say no, and it might be a company that you don't want. You probably, at this stage of the game, I would say from the first bit of material you've done in your life until now, I probably could guarantee that you have at least three hours of material that you feel you're confident in. Yeah. And so that's what's amazing. I think it's a good thing that you'll produce your own special, though, because then what's the worst thing that could happen as Dane Cook said to me before he did tourgasm and I said are you sure you want to spend three hundred thousand dollars on this tourgasm thing I mean what happens if god forbid we don't sell it right and he said well I guess I'll just have the most expensive home movie in the world to show my grandchildren <laughs> it's like uh you, you ever seen the movie uh, Bugsy yes and he says Benny you're gonna end up with nothing on this deal and he said but the flamingo will be built that's not nothing 
That's correct. The flamingo will be built. How do you handle the fact that these people say no, even if you don't look at yourself this way? It's like being a star NBA player and being on the bench. And you're like, what am I doing on the bench yeah. here? I, 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 I can... I can score 30 a night. Absolutely. And you are probably, I would say, I'm not going to mention the names, but probably one of only three to five people I know of. That doesn't have a, yeah. Yes. I mean, there's been, there's, there's been, I'm, I, I agree with you guys. And a lot of times artists look to their representation and they say, you represented this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy who did a special. How come you can't get me a special or the agent? Hey, have the president of the agency call and get me the special. And this is ridiculous. I just sold a special for a guy who shall remain nameless. Maybe they've done 25 dates in this country. Wow. And I sold a special for the person. Did they were sitting here? They would say, look, I know I'm great. I have to believe I am better than Tony Rock, but he deserves a special more than I do. <laughs> I passed on Montreal the first time I got it. Got it and said, no, nah, you know what? I'm, I don't want to do it. I'll do it next year. And Richie said, why would you do that? And I said, because I'll be that much better a year from now. It's just going to be better. If I got to wait till next year, it'll just, it's just going to be better. I'm not going to stop working. It's not going to stop me. It'll just be better. Well, I think the great part I love about you is that normally what comics like is they like to get that late night set on television and they get frustrated. How come I don't have one yet? How come I don't have it yet? And I'm like, do you really believe that you're going to go your career without doing a five minute set on television? Of course it's going to happen. And the hour special is going to happen for you and everything you want to have happen is going to happen. I love the way you handle it. I love your attitude because I tell you, I work with people who have such a sense of entitlement. It literally makes me want to buy a handgun when I go home and say, <laughs> what, what is wrong? I, from now on, yeah. anybody tells me they want a special, I'm going to give them your number. <laughs> no, please don't. All right. That's a lot of phone calls. So I want to go way, way back just for a moment. Take me back to Bedford Stuyvesant, if you pronounce it that way. Bedstuy, yeah. Bedstuy. What your family dynamic was like, mom and dad, growing up with eight kids. You were, in, I think, the fourth child. Yeah. And what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? When I grew up in Bed-Stuy, it was probably the worst neighborhood in America. Were your parents poor? Uh, we, wasn't, we weren't rich. We were, we were not rich. We weren't poor. What did your parents do to My make My father money? drove a truck for the New York Daily News. Where the Barclays Center is, used to be the hub for the New York Daily News. So, you know, they would load the papers up at night and my father would drive through the city at night delivering newspapers. And your mom? My mom was a school teacher. She taught uh, pre-K and then she taught mentally disabled children. Then she taught mentally disabled adults. So, you know, we, we, my parents were working. And my father made us work. At 14, we had to have a job. So it was like 13th birthday, you could have whatever you want. 14th birthday, you could have whatever you want, but you're going to buy it. So we all had jobs at 14. And then at 14, what were the kind of jobs? I had a paper route. I had, uh, I washed cars. I shoveled snow. I did, you know, it was whatever. I did odd jobs on the block. If somebody wanted to stoop painted, it was like, hey, call the kid in 619. He'll, he'll paint your stoop for $75. And a lot of brothers, see a lot of brothers is a good thing. So I would fill a bucket up with some hot water and some sponges and ring your doorbell. Hey, you want your car washed? And yeah, yeah $10, we'll get the wheels in. Splitting my brothers. We was, we was, we were, uh, we were entrepreneurial. 
at a young age. So my, cause my dad always stressed us working and my father stressed education. So because of that, and because I'm working at the newspaper, there was always newspapers at our house. So that's why we, my brothers, we always read the paper. Like you got to get up in the morning, read the paper, get the material. That's where it started. And we didn't even know it. So my parents would, you know, go to lunch or, or, or you know, go food shopping, whatever they were out the house. It was, we couldn't go outside until they got back. And oldest brother had to watch everybody. So we're, now we're just in the house trying to entertain ourselves. And that's when we started snapping on each other, snapping his ranking or cracking joke, whatever you guys, I don't know what you guys call it. Kind of like roasting individually. Uh, yeah, roasting. So we would roast each other. We would crack jokes on each other. And then one time I went into my parents' record collection and got a Richard Pryor album and listened to it. And it was the funniest shit I've ever heard in my life. And I went to school the next day and I'm on the school bus telling Richard Pryor jokes. I'm like literally just telling his jokes verbatim. And the kids are just dying laughing on the bus. And uh, the next day I come and do it again. And then like by the third day, they're like, what are you talking about tomorrow? And I'm like, I don't know. I got to listen to the rest of the record because I don't, I got to follow what he's doing. And a teacher hears it and tells my mom, my mother was a school teacher at the same school I went to, by the way. So when I would get in trouble, I wouldn't get sent to the principal's office. I would get sent to my mother's classroom, which is far worse than getting sent to the principal's office. So the teacher's like, uh, Anthony was using foul language in class today. I think he was doing Richard Pryor. And my mother's like, did you hear this? And I'm like, the record, you know, you and dad got. And she's like, yeah, this is his job. He's a comedian. This is what he does. He travels the world. He does movies and TV shows. And he makes lots of money doing this. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm in. Like, how do I get out of school to do this? And that was the start. That was the seed. Then, you know, years of just watching. That's when we started just watching whoever was funny on TV. And it was whatever was funny, we would watch it. And, you know, try to figure stuff out. And, okay, that's a callback. And that's this. And try to dissect what comedy was. Years go by. Eddie Murphy is on SNL. It's the biggest thing in the world to the rock household. To see Eddie Murphy every Saturday night is literally like if you touch the TV, you get your ass whipped. If you walk in front of the TV when Eddie's on, you get your ass whipped. It was the biggest thing in the world to us. Then my brother goes to see, get tickets to see Eddie Murphy at Madison Square Garden. He's standing in line for tickets to see Eddie Murphy and gets his tickets, jumps back on the train and goes uptown to the comic trip and signs up for open mic. So now my brother's doing this thing and I'm just waiting my turn. I'm in school. I got to go to school and, you know, I gotta, I, I'm, I'm a kid. So now I hang out with my brother. I'm in comedy clubs now. I'm in, he sneaks me in the strip. He's like, you can't drink, of course. Just sit in the corner, be quiet, watch everybody, watch everything. I see Eddie Murphy at the comic strip, leather suit Eddie Murphy at the comic strip. Like the biggest motherfucker in the world. And I'm in the room like, holy shit, that's Eddie Murphy right there. I see Dennis Wolfberg live. I see Adam Sandler. I see, you name the comic in that age, at that time, I, I saw them on stage at the, fact, at, the, uh, at the strip. And now I'm just blown away. And I'm going home to Sherrod and I'm telling them, like, I saw this guy and Chrissy took me here. We call Chris Chrissy. Chrissy took me here and we went here and we met this guy. And now Sherrod's like, we got to fucking go see this at all times. And we just drawn to it. And then I get out of school. Sherrod goes away to college. He's gone for three, four years. And I'm working regular jobs. I'm just, you know, a working guy. But I'm writing material the whole time. I have composition notebooks full of jokes and I haven't touched the stage yet. It was just this thing. It was like a thing that I used to do. And then Sherrod comes home and he's like, 
I'm, you know, I'm writing some stuff and I'm like, get out of here. Look at this. And I show him my book notebook and it's like full of jokes. And like, we are, we're going on stage. We're going to find an open mic and we're going on stage. And New York Comedy Club had an open mic that Saturday. You had to pay $5 and bring one person. I paid $5. I was Gerard's person. He paid $5. He was my person. June, July 27th, 1996. That was it. It was on. It was on and popping. Incredible. I was fortunate enough to see your brother on stage in the very, very, very early stages when he only had five minutes when he would hold his face and look down the entire time and we kept saying like why don't why do you look down like it was like fucking nervous the bit that i remember that i will never forget as long as i live was the five minute bit on bill cosby being a racist and fat <laughs> albert being a racist cartoon yeah. wasn't that the first yeah, five yeah. minutes yeah yeah that was that was very early on couldn't have weighed more than 100 pounds and it was like clothes were hanging off of him he had these acid wash jeans i think yeah. and these big one sneakers. of the characters is abba beba boba yeah. like what the fuck is that it's like hey hey, hey i'm illiterate yeah but there was not one semblance of performance skill it was a stool next to him, and he had the thing where he barely looked at anybody. Yeah. Yet the bit killed. Yeah. A blind person could have watched it, and it killed. And that really, to this day, if I ever see a comedian that has a five, you know, five minutes that's just like, whoa, where did that come from? I, I'm like, that person has to do something because, you know, it's so rare to find right. somebody who does that kind of stuff most people have to find their voice he had the voice in the first five minutes he didn't have the performance he had the, yeah he had the, he did it the other way he had the voice first and then had to learn how to be a perform performer but that's like a real good comic you you can hear the bit and laugh at regardless like if you have to watch the guy in order to laugh we always say that if you gotta is the guy like turn around funny can you turn around turn your back to him and still laugh at the material that's a funny guy if you gotta watch him and he has to jump up in the air and knock the stool over and do it. It's probably not that funny. But if you can just hear it, like Richard Pryor, listening to that album. I can't see him, but oh my God, it was like he was in the room. Drugs, alcohol, and the comedy profession. What's your perception of it? Well, going back to Bed-Stuy, I grew up in Bed-Stuy in the crack era. So I saw drugs destroy a lot of people. Do you remember Charlie Barnett's bit? Which one? The one where he said, there's good and bad and everything. <laughs> good and bad and everything. Take crack. People are like, what? Crack? What are you? Yeah. Crack brought the price of pussy down to $5. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that? I do. Now that you said it. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I saw, I saw crack destroy households, families, kids, daughters. It was, it was the worst. It was, I was scared of it. I was scared of drugs. Lynn Bias was one of my idols when I was a kid. Did cocaine overdose scared the shit out of Boston me. Celtics nineteen eighty six certain pick? Yeah, I'm I'm scared of drugs. Was there ever anybody who you knew was addicted to drugs and alcohol, and you had the conversation? My brother, my brother, my oldest brother was an alcoholic. My oldest brother was an alcoholic. Though I I try not to live my life with any regrets, but I had just started making some ways in the business. He passed away. He was he was an alcoholic, and I I think I could have did more to save him. I think I should have did more to save him. I think I should have. 
I probably should have just flown to L.A., but I would have had to fly him to L.A. and put somebody on him 24 hours a day. And I, I didn't know the process of how you I don't I didn't know how you clean somebody up like when somebody's addicted. I didn't know what do you put him in a center and does he sneak out? Like, I don't get it because we tried to put him in treatment several times and it just didn't work. So I didn't know what the process was. Hey, everybody. I am really, really excited. We have a sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names, and I want you to tell me a story oh or something God. that comes to mind, this is okay? be good, depending oh. on what names you say. Dave Chappelle. Oh, my comedic idol. He's my comedic idol. Dave Chappelle's the, the, probably the best comic out right now. Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey. Hardworking. He has created a blueprint that a lot of comics should follow just in far, as far as his business savvy. You know, he creates shows, he hosts shows, he's tours, he's, he created a blueprint that, I, that I'm not going to lie and say I don't follow. I do follow it. He, uh, he has, he's involved in very many things. He shows that a comic can come from where he came from, not saying regionally, but just, you know, being looked at a certain way as an a, a urban act and be on mainstream TV and white people will invite him into their houses weekly. Russell Simmons. The most influential person in my career in probably the last five years. Russell's the guy that has actually literally beat on doors and said Tony deserves an hour special. He went to HBO and we got all deaf and was like, listen, we're going to do all deaf. And then after all deaf, we're doing Tony's hour. Unfortunately, change of events. They, they kind of That's kind of off the table now, for now. But I think HBO, I think I'm still on their radar, so we'll see what happens. But definitely a... A, a guy that I've learned a tremendous amount from. Howard Stern. Ah, Howard Stern. Surprisingly a fan of mine. Everybody that's been up to Howard Stern has sp spoken favorably about me. Kevin Nealon said some really, really nice stuff about me on Howard Stern's show. And then with the, with the reach that he has, a bunch of people called me and was like, hey, man, Kevin Nealon said some really cool stuff about you. And Stern said some cool stuff about you, and I did the show. Uh, did the show twice, I believe, and both times he was like, "Man, you're a hardworking guy." I, I gave me kudos, so props to Howard Stern. Did you listen to him growing up? I didn't, not as much as like you know the the how hardcore I would hear about people. My friends would say, "Hey, this guy, you got to check this out." So at my boy's house, I would listen once or twice, but I, I wasn't a hardcore fan. 
Will Smith. Will Smith, the coolest guy in the industry by far that I've ever worked with. My audition for, for all of us, I went to the first audition. Normally, the guy that's creating the show isn't at the first audition. And I went in the room. Long story short, I was at the Laugh Factory. Monica Swan was in the audience. This is why I stay on stage, because everything that has happened in my career positively has happened from someone seeing me do stand-up. That's why I stay on stage. I'm on stage at the Laugh Factory one night. Monica Swan, Monica Swan just happens to be in the audience. I have a pretty good set. She comes over and says, hey, are you in town for a while? Uh, yeah, I could be. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm on a buddy pass or whatever. I can go home whenever I need. Will Smith is producing this sitcom, and I think you would be perfect for this character. Now, this is when I'm 1,000% 1, hours. I get the sides. I fly home <laughs> to work with uh, uh, Joanna Bexson. Great, great, great acting. Coach. I fly home to work with Joanna Bexson. Joanna Bexson reads the sides and says to me, this is you. You're going to get this part. And we work for the whole evening on the sides, backwards, forwards. You should do it this way, do it that way. And then I'm like, okay, let's do it one more time. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. And like after the fifth time, okay, one more, one more time. She says, no, no, no. You're done. Get out of my office. You don't need to do it again. You got it. Now you're just gonna, it's going to be overkill. Go get them. I fly back to L.A., I go to the audition. I'm excited about the audition just because it's a Will Smith show. Like, maybe I'll get to meet him. In the, in the grand scheme of things, a million people are going to audition for this part. So the likelihood of you getting it is not really in your favor. But if I get to meet Will Smith, that'll be cool. So I go in. Will Smith is sitting right there. Holy shit. I'm like, I was just like saying it to myself. Like, it'd be cool if he was here. He's here. And he says, you know what? I'll read with him. And he reads the other character. Now it's me and Will Smith back and back and forth. <laughs> and uh, he has my headshot in his hand as I'm leaving the room. And he sits down and he goes, I look back. Like as I'm walking out the door, I look back and he's just like, Tony Rock. Hmm. <laughs> and I never, and the next day I, I get home that night, my agent calls him. They loved you. Whatever you did today, do the same thing tomorrow. And I go in and read again. Will's there. Now it's more people. You know, now it's studio network. It's, the room gets bigger every callback, you know. And then I get the final call back and I go back. Uh, my callback's like, you know, 10 o'clock. I get there at 9.30. Who are you testing against? Uh, this is, uh, I'm tell I get there at 9.30. The final test is at 10 o'clock. I'm in the hallway. Will comes out to use the bathroom or something like that. And he sees me in the hallway. I'm like, you're early. I'm like, yeah, man. I'm just, you know, ready to go. And he's like, well, I got time before the rest of everybody else gets here. And we sit in the hallway and we talk for a half hour. Basketball, New York versus Philly. Women, L.A., how much we like L.A., what we like about New York, what have you been to this restaurant? Just uh, just two guys talking. Then the rest of the network shows up and people start going in the room. Will, we're ready. And he says, uh, are you nervous? And I'm like, well, I was really nervous before I, when I got here. But now after having a conversation, I, I'm, I kind of, you know, mellowed out a little bit. And he said, well, you, you don't need to be nervous because you would really have to fuck this up to not get this part. You're the only guy reading. There was nobody testing against me. I think that's happened maybe three times in my career. Yeah, there was nobody testing it. So I go in. Now I just sat with him for a half hour. So I'm super loose and we're going in less movies is watching on a monitor. And I go in and kill and get home that night. And they call and they're like, hey, you got it. I cry and I fly home to hug Sherrod. So that's Will Smith. I had never been on TV. I had never been, I've been on TV, but just like pieces, bits and pieces here and there. I've never been on a sitcom. I've never been weekly on television. It all happened 
when I got that part on Will Smith's show. And normally, a guy like Les Moonves, he demands you have choices. Yeah. At least another person. Yeah. But what probably happened is when you got a guy like Will Smith who's producing a show, Will Smith can call Les Moonves and say, yeah. I want to do it this way. Okay, and Will. A little, it was a little TV screen, like, you know, a little camera just like that mounted. And he's like, yeah, Les is watching. And I audition and they tell me I can leave. I get home. Boom. It's been on ever since. Steve Colbert. Steve Colbert, fun guy, man. Had me on his show. A super funny, was impressed. He didn't know that there was, there was a sibling family. The, the Rocks was, was, you know, three brothers that do stand-up. Loved my energy. Teddy would love to have me back. I, want, I actually want to go back and do the show again. I want to do stand-up next time. I did stand-up on the couch, but I want to go and do a set. I just, I think he's a cool guy. Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx. Another guy that handed me a job because he saw me on stage doing stand-up. Was at the Laugh Factory one night, Chocolate Sunday. Jamie Foxx was in the balcony. I go on and now I said I had a pretty good set for Monica Swan. I crushed in front of Jamie Foxx. And I purposely was like, I'm going to go hard just because I know he did Laugh at Palooza. I thought maybe if he tours, I can be an opening act. Maybe he can, you know, something can happen. And uh, he calls me. I have a friend, Joe Fox is a comedian that lives in LA. Jamie calls me and he's like, hey, I answer the phone like, Rock, what's up? And I said, who's this? He's like, Fox. I'm thinking it's Joe Fox. So I'm like, oh, what up, boy? And he's like, come to the house. I, I'm going to talk to you about something. And I'm like, what? Like, Joe Fox has never invited me to his house. I'm like, I don't, I don't know where your house is. And he's like, you, you ever been to my house? And I'm, the whole time I'm thinking I'm talking to Joe Fox. And he's like, this is Jamie. I'm like, Jamie who? He's like, Jamie Fox. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I hang up the phone. <laughs> he calls back like, yo, Rock, it's Jamie Fox. Remember I saw you at the factory a couple of Sundays ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yo, here, I'm going to text you my address. Come to the house. And it's way out there in the valley somewhere. I'm driving and I'm calling my friends again. I'm calling home. I'm such a not normal celebrity. I don't consider myself a celebrity. I'm, I'm a kid from Bedford Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. All of this shit is amazing to me. All of this shit. Being here is fucking blowing my mind. So I'm calling home while I'm driving. Like, yo, I'm on my way to Jamie Foxx's house. He wants to talk to me about something. And all my boys are like, get the fuck out of here. Can you take pictures? Can you? I'm like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to look like a sucker. And I get there and he's like sitting in his living room and he has a chef that's cooking him lunch, and he's like, you need, you want anything? Anything you want the specification? And I'm like, I'll take a cheeseburger. I don't know. Chef makes me a cheeseburger, and he pulls out the, you know, some paperwork, and he's like, hey, I'm bringing Apollo back. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. And now I'm thinking to myself, he's not going to host Apollo. Like, what was Jamie Foxx host Apollo for? And he goes, yeah, so we're going to be thinking about shooting around this date, and we got to clear your schedule and clear my schedule. Yeah, you're going to host and I said, okay, uh, what, what, I've sent a tape in? Do I need to? No, I saw you that night at the factory. You're, you're, you're the host. <laughs> Handed me a job. Now, how many times has that happened in the business? Very rarely. Handed me a job. So Jamie Foxx, super cool in my book. I, I, I don't know. I didn't know what to say. I think I was working with you about a little bit at the time. Probably, yeah, yeah. Just it was like, it's yours. It's yours if you want it. Go home to the Apollo and shoot a show. Fuck yeah, I want it. And we shot two seasons and BET fucked it up. There's no shortage. There will never be a shortage of people that want to perform at the Apollo. That show could have ran for 10 years. Why do you think it went away? Why do any of the good shows? <laughs> they just didn't like. Wait, just a second here. You just said something that don't seem to go together. You said all the good shows on BET. Well, all the good shows listen, on BET. There's been some good shows on BET. All the good shows. I, they didn't know what they had. They didn't know they had a gold mine. That show could have ran for 10 years. To this, And then and what happened? Steve Harvey brought it back. You know why? Because there's never, 
ever going to be a shortage of people that can say, hey, I performed on the same stage as Michael Jackson, Aretha Franklin, Cool in the Gang, uh, Jay-Z, whoever, you name the person, Gladys Knight, Dougie Fresh, Belle Bib DeVoe, Ricky, uh, New Edition, uh, Maxwell, everybody performed at the Apollo. Just to say you did it is an honor in itself. They could have ran that show for 20 years. So when I was in New York, I would go run my comedy club, the Boston Comedy Club. Back then, you just had a VCR to record things. As somebody once said, a $400 clock in your living room. But I didn't really know how to operate. And you had the two-hour, four-hour, and the six-hour thing on the VHS. And I loved Showtime at the Apollo. It was very inspiring for me. And I would always press the six-hour thing and just leave my house and go to the club. And then I'd come back afterwards and I'd watch the Apollo on the shittiest quality speed. And there was one performance that I didn't remember seeing from Jennifer Holiday, where she came out and she sang that song, you know, and you, and you, and you, you're going to love me. And she got three standing ovations in the middle and the performance, everything she had, she put into it. It was insane. And I used to watch that for inspiration to say to myself that's the kind of artist and comedy if i could work with comedians who could put that kind of right. effort in and get that kind of response and galvanize an audience like that that would be a dream for me that's my goal of what i want to be involved in and so the apollo has always been a big thing. absolutely to, and it's that to everyone in the world and they canceled it but i digress mark curry Mark Curry is a beast on stage. People, you know, he's not, he hasn't done a sitcom in some time and you don't see him very much in movies. We did it. We toured a couple of years back. Brian Alden, you know, it was a, the tour was myself, Mark, Tommy Davidson, Samoa hosted. I think Earthquake was the headliner. And every night I would do my set and run in the room and sit and watch Mark Curry. That dude is a monster on stage, man. He's he. I watch him and I realize like, you can still learn how to do stand-up even 20-something years in. You can still see different things that people do. And just as he populates the stage, like, like you know, how Tracy Morgan populates the stage. Tracy Morgan can make the stage look like it's 10 people on the stage. Mark Curry does that. Mark Curry will do his grandmother's over there and his mama's walking in the kitchen and the chicken's right here. And you see all of that shit, man. Mark Curry, he paints a picture, man. He's 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 monster on stage. One of the greatest stand-up comedians who people don't know is the greatest stand-up comedian. I mean, I used to see him in Oakland, yeah. and imagine me in Oakland. And when he does, uh, give me, a, give me a topic, and I'll make it like give me something. And yes. Hey, uh, elephants, and he'll do ten minutes on elephants, and, and literally strong laughter, strong. Oh, he's he's a monster. Incredible. I went to a few of those shows that yeah. you were at. Yeah. Incredible. He's a bad boy. Cat Williams. Cat Williams. We had the same manager for a few years. Uh, he left and blew up. Is we're always respectful when we when we see each other. I'm very happy for his career. Uh, he said a few things in the media about my brother for for whatever reason, and uh, I just I'm just one of those guys that whenever somebody says something about one of my brothers, I feel like I need to address it. So I, I, we we've spoken a couple of times. Like, hey man, everything cool? Like, you know, what's the, what's the, what's the issue? But I. Another another monster on stage. I'm you know I, I'm I'm inspired by him. Whitney Cummings. Whitney Cummings, super funny. Whitney Cummings is super funny. She's uh she Whitney Cummings did what I want to do. She got in the game and then she had it mapped out for the next step. She had she probably had the next step already figured out before she got the first step. 
And that's what you have to do. You have to have, you know, Bob Marley, remember comedian Bob Marley? Yeah, the guy from Maine. Bob Marley told me your career is a shelf. You have to have your shelf full. So when they say, hey, you know, you got any TV shows? You go, hey, you grab the shelf, go to the shelf. Hey, what about a sitcom? Here, here you go. Here's, here's, you got to have everything on the shelf ready to go because they'll give you a little bit of time. Once you get in, you only have a little bit of time to get to that next step. And Whitney Cummins did that. She went in, she got in the game, boom, two broke girls, boom, Whitney. So she's boom. Now she's in a movie. She she did it right. She uh, I'm I'm following her uh, her blueprint. Neil Brennan. Neil Brennan, super funny, super funny. Kevin Brennan didn't even know they was brothers. Sherrod and I used to run in the room to watch Kevin Brennan all the time. Like that dude's super funny, super funny. Uh, what's the joke? Uh, <laughs> the Puerto Rican Day Parade is going on this weekend. I guess I'll go up to the Bronx and get all my shit back. <laughs> <laughs> I like Neil Brennan, smart guy. Uh, you know, helped create the Chappelle Show, one of my favorite shows. I like the way he writes his uh, his his uh, hour special was incredible. Three mics, incredible. My favorite line of Kevin Brennan's was where he says, "You know, my dad was kind of mean growing up. I remember he shot my dog in the backyard, which was really really traumatic for me because." I was holding the dog at the time. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'll go up to the Bronx and get my shit back. And then the room goes, oh, he's like, I'm just kidding. I'll never get my shit back. <laughs> Tracy Morgan. Tracy Morgan. Uh, I was his opening act for two years. Tracy Morgan taught me a tremendous amount about stand-up comedy, how to perform on stage. He uh, told me whenever they put a mic in your face, give them a show. If you're doing late night talk show, give them a show. If you're doing an interview, give them a show. You Always give them a show. Never be the boring comedian that they just go, ah, he, that wasn't fun talking to him. He he was, uh, in, back, and after the shows, he turned into a rock star. That guy, uh, he taught me a lot about stand-up. I'm, I'm very appreciative to Tracy Morgan. I've been, I've been blessed. That's one of my things in, in this business. I've been blessed to have Wanda Sykes pull me to the side and just sit for 10 minutes and talk to me. Uh, Tracy Morgan, city after city, just like in the green room, just absorbing all of this stuff. John Witherspoon, I was his opening act for maybe a summer, just taking it all in. Wanda, Tracy, uh, Mark Curry, watching him. Vic Henley. Of course. Vic Henley challenged me and Sherrod. He said, this is your challenge for the remainder of your career in stand-up comedy. Whenever I see you, I want to see a one new bit. I don't want you guys doing the same sets every night at the comic strip or the cellar or the New York or whatever. When I walk in the room, new, one new bit every time you see me. And we shook hands on it. And he's like, I don't care where you see me. If I walk into the Laugh Factory this Saturday or whatever night and I see Vic Henley, oh shit, new bit. Got to think of whatever new bit I just wrote. And that's the agreement we had. And that just kept us always writing and working. So Vic Henley's been very influential as well. Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy took comedy to rock star status. Eddie Murphy is the comedian that is Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor are probably the two reasons why every little black kid, whether they did it or not, wanted to be a stand-up comedian. To go from the heights of stand-up that he went to and then transition into the heights of movie making and not even have a slight drop-off. Like he was just as big a comic as he was a comedic actor. His movies were just as big. Eddie Murphy's the he's not the king. Richard Pryor's the king, but he's he's right there. Louis Anderson. Louis Anderson, we used to watch. Louis Anderson used to do a lot of TV stuff back in the day when we would, when we would just run to the TV. When any, when anybody was on TV doing stand up, we would, me and my brothers, all my brothers would just run to the TV. We were just so drawn to stand up. We loved Louis Anderson, we loved Joe Bolster, 
We loved Mark Schiff, Dennis Wolfberg. We just we thought Dennis Wolfberg was the funniest dude in the world. He was man. the late Dennis Wolfberg. Yes, yes, rest in peace. Richard Jenny, Richard Jenny, like the late rest, Richard Jenny. He and I would talk at the Laugh Factory all the time. For some reason, he just took a liking to me, and he would come in and ask if I was there. Like when I was sitting upstairs for three night, three shows, and he would just sit up there, and we would just chop it up and talk about whatever. And he was just super funny. But those are the guys we would just we would run to the TV like, oh man, this whole this this new stand up thing that we've been exposed to was amazing. And Louis Anderson was one of the guys we would always love to see on stage. Chris Rock. Chris Rock. He was the guy that made that that made me believe that it was real. And by that I mean Eddie Murphy. I had never met. He was ideal. He was an idea. I never met him. Never had a conversation with him. He was just a guy that I was like, man, this dude's great. Richard Pryor was a guy that I never met, but I loved him. Uh, all of those comics you named, I, I had never met them. They were just people that I was, you know, gravitated towards because of what they were doing. And then the guy in the next room started doing it, and that made it real. It's like now where all these other guys were just like, I don't know what their personalities are, and I don't know how they did this. The guy that's sleeping in the next room is doing it now, so now I know it's real. Now I can do it. Great comic, one probably top two, the the two. My two best, the two best in the country, uh, Dave and my brother. Very focused. The hardest working guy. He's got, a I got a little bit of that from him. Sometimes I feel like he would rather I wasn't in the business just because it, he, I, I, maybe he doesn't, I'm just guessing. Maybe he doesn't want it to be like a, a gimmicky thing with three brothers that do stand up, you know? So now when, in any interview he does, they have to ask about Tony or Jordan. They have to ask about something that Tony... Whereas he was, you know, he started out by himself. So I don't know. Sometimes I feel like he, he would rather I wasn't in the business. Do you remember what I said to you when I met with you? We had a management meeting at my, my company. And when Tony didn't have a manager, he met with a bunch of managers. And I was fortunate to get a meeting with him with a manager who was I was working with at the time within the company, Lisa Bloom, who represented a lot of great people, including uh, Jim Jeffries and Marlon Wayans. And I remember sometimes you take meetings together, even though you're not the primary person who's going to be involved. And, and we took a meeting with you. And I remember I said something to you. And the look on her face when I said it to you, I could the tell... The look on her face? I could tell that she was like, uh, are you trying to stop us from signing Tony Rock? What'd you say? But I felt it was the thing that swayed you at least slightly in that direction. And you tell me if I'm wrong and you remember this. Go right ahead. I said, you know, it's great to be here. I could sit here and tell you everything that you want to hear of why you should be here and why you should do this and why you should do that. And I'm just going to share with you the thing that's on my mind that I look forward to working with you because of this. And I look forward to getting to the point where it's this way. And you looked at me and you said, what is that? And I said, normally comedians go on stage when they're starting. They don't want to follow certain people. I don't want to go on after Dane Cook. They don't say it. Right. I don't want to follow George Lopez where he gets a standing ovation in here at the Latino night. And I said to you, you're an anomaly because every night you go on stage, uh, yeah. you're following, yeah. you have to follow your brother and he's not even in the room. Yeah. And I said, the most exciting thing I'm going to find about working with you that I'm going to love working with you is right now you're in a situation where everywhere you go, who's that guy? Hey, that's Chris Rock's brother. That's Chris Rock's brother. That's Chris Rock's brother. I said, my number one goal in working with you with your bucket list 
is to one day have you come to me and say, my brother just called me. He said, somebody saw me and they came up to me and they said, hey, you're Tony Rock's brother. <laughs> I remember that. Yes. You know, the, uh, in New York City, the, the restaurant, the uh, coffee shop? Yeah. On, what, the 16th? Yeah. yeah. So my brother's in there one night, a bunch of people holding court at the big table in the corner. And there's a bunch of girls at the table behind them. Union and, Square. And, yeah. And one of the girls, uh, you know, Valerie Jean? Yeah. Oh, my God. Beautiful supermodel who's a comedian. Yes. So Valerie Jean. Is she still doing comedy? I don't know. I haven't seen her in years, but I got to give her props for this. She's at a table behind my brother. And all the girls are like, didn't you say you knew his brother? And you know, she's like, yeah, I, I, I'm good friends with Tony. Like, and she's like, well, tap him and tell him, say hi to him. And she's like, I don't know what to say to him. I don't know him. I know his brother. And she reaches over and taps my brother on the shoulder. He turns around and she's like, I didn't know what to say. She says, your brother is so funny. <laughs> and she said he looked at it and just turned slowly and turned back to the table. And I'm like, Valerie Jean, I will love you forever for that. All right. Your proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment in show business, there's levels to it. Passing at the strip was a very proud moment. Passing at the comedy cellar, proud moment. Hosting Def Jam, I went from standing in the back of the room with no seat, just happy to be in the room, to hosting the show. Very proud moment. Hosting Apollo, like I said, everybody in the world wants to perform at the Apollo. I was the ringleader of the greatest talent competition in the world. I was the ringleader of the greatest urban comedy showcase in the world. In the world. Nothing bigger than Def Jam. Nothing bigger than Apollo. All of us, a lot of stuff, man. Just being able to be, you know, just being able to be considered for, you know, Mike Epps is on tour this year. I'm his opening act. Just the, the fact that Mike says, yeah, I'll take rock. Mike could have took anybody. Mike says, I'll, I'll take rock. Very proud. 20, 30 things I'm proud of in this business. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. My biggest disappointment in show business. A few pilots that I didn't get that I thought were going to go, you know, like stuff like that. Uh, my brother told me he was going to put me in top five and didn't. That was very disappointing. That must have been a tough Thanksgiving. That was very disappointing. Uh, I tried to get him on a sitcom when I was doing the sitcom on UPN. He didn't do it. That was very disappointing. Not getting SNL. I, like They threw my name in the hat one year. It was one of those years where they didn't have a black act and they're like, who's a black guy we can look for and my name was thrown in the hat and I didn't get it and I thought that would have been a life changer but you know there's, there's really no disappointment like I don't want to sound like oh he's lying I'm just happy to be doing this man like it'll be disappointing for a little while and it might be you know incredibly disappointing for a little while but then tomorrow's another day you know when friends say to you I'm gonna put you in this project and it doesn't happen you have a certain conversation with that friend it's a lot of sometimes you realize okay that person doesn't belong in my life anymore <laughs> but when your family and somebody says i'm gonna put you in top five and you don't get in top five how do you handle that as a family i i didn't the only thing is that this is why it was disappointing i didn't ask to be in it i didn't say hey man i never asked my brother for anything never uh, that's no, that's not true. I, I probably asked him for like five favors my whole life. He said no every time, and I said I'm never gonna ask him for anything else again. That's real. I'm that's as real the realest thing I'll ever tell you. Probably five times. No, 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 no. And I was like, that's it. I'm not asking for anything else. And now I'm just an adult that doesn't ask him for anything. But top five is like I didn't ask to be in it. He was like, hey, we do. I'm doing this movie this summer, and I got you. I'm like, okay, so do I have to call somebody or send somebody? No, no, I got you. And then. 
<laughs> this is so crazy. People in New York are calling me like, hey, man, uh, I just read for your brother's movie today. Are you, are you, are you in it? I'm like, yeah, I'm in it. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I, I heard, he told me he's going to put me in it, so we'll see. And then girls are calling me like, hey, um, I'm auditioning for your brother's movie today. And I'm like, well, just when you go in, tell the casting director you know me. I'm, I can't hurt, you know. A couple of chicks I was actually dating in New York that were like, hey, we going in. And I'm like, well, tell them, tell the casting director. It won't hurt. They, I used to date Tony. If it, for, for, what it, for what it's worth, it won't hurt. So we'll see what happens. And then uh, people are calling me like, hey, I'm on the set. Are you here? Nah. And then people are calling like a week later like, hey, you, are you coming? Like, what, what day do you get here? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm waiting to hear something. And then I swear to you, I get a fucking call from the rap party like, hey, are you here? And I was like, okay, no, I guess, guess not. And how did you approach that with your brother? I probably went and got on stage and was like... So you never talked to him nope. about that? Never? Nope. If it was Sherrod Small's movie... Sherrod wouldn't do that. Let me rephrase. Let's say it's Mark Curry's movie, and that happens. Do you have a conversation yeah, with Mark just, Curry? I would just, you know, say what happened. I would, I, would, I would be curious as to what happened. If he, if he said it like that, like, hey, I, I'm going to do this and, you know... But you would have the conversation with other people. I probably would. If it was Sherrod, I'm sure there would be... Sherrod, it would be extenuating circumstances and he would have to call me and say, this is what happened. I was in... Here's another... You know, I was in the movie Hitch. Yes. It's totally unrelated. I was in the movie Hitch. I had three scenes in the movie That Hitch. was with Kevin, James, and Will Smith. Yeah. My scene, all three of my scenes got cut out the movie. I didn't know it until I got to the premiere of the movie with my friends from Brooklyn that I flew to LA for the premiere Saw Will coming in, went to say hi, and he was like, holy shit, I forgot to tell you, your scene's out of the movie. I had to sit with my friends and watch the movie knowing I wasn't in it and didn't have the heart to tell them. So they sat through the whole movie, excited. Let us know, let us know one scene before you pop up. I'm like, all right, I got you. And I sit there through the whole movie. And then the credits are rolling. They're like, what the fuck? And I'm like, he told me before the movie started, the scenes were cut. I didn't have the heart to tell y'all. I wanted y'all to watch it as excited as y'all were watching it. I didn't want y'all to not be as excited. So I didn't want to tell you and the next day was the sun was up and it was like on to the next thing are you the kind of person who somehow can be the same person when he runs into his brother after that happens or are you yeah, the kind of person yeah, that yeah, are yeah. you the kind of person that's chilly no it's my brother it's my, it's my it, this is the, we're gonna be brothers forever if somebody some comic that's hot right now is like hey i know your brother and you're hot now and y'all had a conversation cool and you might be not be in the business in a year from now I'm going to be his brother tomorrow, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. Still going to be his brother. Because you know how sometimes, and I know this has happened to you, where you run into somebody and they're chilly towards you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking to yourself, why is this guy being I have chilly people that to are me? chilly towards me that owe me money. <laughs> I, I've lent them money and they see me and it's like, why is, wait, wait, how's he weird with me? You owe me $5,000. You owe me ten thousand dollars, and you're like, "Oh, what's up?" Like, are you out of your mind, man. And the fact I'm not even embarrassing you in public is you should you should pat me on the back. You're talking to a girl, and you owe me ten thousand dollars. I should just walk up like, "Sweetheart, that ain't gonna happen. It <laughs> ain't gonna happen." He owes me ten thousand dollars. This is a true story, by the way. This is a pay-to-play podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in Bed-Stuy, not oh, a lot of money, God. hanging out with seven brothers and sisters, and 
not really knowing what's going to happen, what the future brings, and to have the kind of career that you've had. Just always remember that where you are doesn't mean you're going to be there forever. So when you look out the window and you see crime and violence, that's a reflection of where you're standing, but not a reflection of your vision. If you can see it, you can actually be there. If you can see yourself wherever you, on the football field or on, on the NBA court or stand-up comedy or lawyer, doctor, entrepreneur, if you can see it, you can actually get yourself there. Don't let your surroundings dictate your vision. Uh, work hard. Get the work done first because everything is better when you get the work done first. So many people and, you know, so many kids especially are concerned with the newest sneakers and having a pretty girlfriend and getting a driver's license and hopefully getting a car one day and being at the, the the hottest parties. You get the work done first. The cars are nicer. The girls are prettier. The parties are better. The money's bigger. The houses are nicer. And if you don't get the work done first, you end up working for a guy that got the work done first. And then you can't get the work done first because now you're an employee and not a boss. Tony Rock. <laughs> You exceeded even your own expectations. <laughs> no, I have not. You don't even know what my expectations are. This was unbelievable. Extraordinary interview. Thank you thank, so much. Thank you so much. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Stellar Angel 33, March 30th, 2018, heading reads... One of my favorite podcasts, five stars. It reads, every single interview occurs to me like a great HBO special. I learn so much as a stand-up comic and as a human that I get the leapfrog over the many who don't know about the show. Shh, don't tell them. Great questions, great guests, great host. No holds barred. Simply the best entertainment to keep me company on my walks. Thanks for contributing to my heart, my mind, and my spirit, Barry Katz. All right. So great. Thank you so much, Stellar Angel 33. Congratulations. You are a winner. Lastly, I'd like to thank our sponsors, AquaTrue. Again, go to industrystandardwater.com type in the promo code Barry and get $100 off and get the best tasting water you can ever imagine and I killed JFK the documentary in the interviews about the only man in history to admit to killing JFK the documentary is incredible you love it the interviews are insane with the last remaining living experts check it out ikilledjfk.com and the air doctor, removing dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and everything bad in your home air. And you can save $300 right now. Go to airdoctorpro.com, enter the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, enter the promo code Barry, and start breathing in clean and healthy air today. And lastly, thanks to our partners at Wondery. They are amazing. They asked me if I could request that you take 
a little bit of your time and do a short, short survey. Just go to wondery.com slash survey. It only takes a few minutes of your time. You can do it straight from your smartphone, and it would really help us out at the show and at Wondery. That's wondery.com slash survey. just takes a couple of minutes, and I really appreciate it. Thanks. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.